Yeah, I wanted to dedicate the Shia, I'll do your second, to uh, Rini Malko, Regina Basiosef-Ruven, that the Shia should go in the memory, in the schut of this woman. And also, in addition to a person that was Nifta just recently, what's his name? Eliyahu Ben, Rav Eliyahu Ben. Safia. Safia. Yes. Also from this year. Amen. Okay. So let's begin. Now I am I am really talking extensively. <clears throat> Since I'm talking about Yaakov and Esav, I ran that quite a couple of weeks ago. And I think last week I was really talking a great deal about one of the forms of Esav, which we know, as I mentioned, uh, that Esav, according to the Torah, is uh, Edom, Edomites. And the Gemara says that Edom is Romi, is Rome. And we know, as I mentioned, that Rome was transformed as Esav into a religion. So therefore the Jews, would, if they would go to any country that would have the religion, would be technically under the dominance of Esav. Now we know that Rome became, as I mentioned, Christianity, a religion. And Christianity is basically today Western civilization. And we have been under Western civilization for at least 2,000 years. And therefore we are technically under the um, submission uh, under Esau. And I've been talking about that. You know, what are the repercussions and the results of all this? Um, So since I'm on that topic, I will continue. Some of the very important ideas of what that means, you see. In any case... Um, we notice certain very interesting phenomenon, and all of this is a pattern right before the gula. What is that pattern? You know, it's interesting. The world reached one billion people, I think, in 1800. I don't remember the exact year. So could you imagine it took thousands of years for the world to go from Adam Harishan right, to one billion people. took a long time. Yet from 1800 approximately uh, to today, which is what? Which is about, let's say, 220 years, we now have close to 8 billion people. So could you imagine the acceleration, the speed of what that means? That in 200 years, we have gone eight times more than the previous, whatever, four, five, five thousand years, whatever, which is staggering. Now, what's also interesting is if you add up the, all the people that were born over the thousands of years, you will find that if you added up all the people that were born, like I said, right, it would add up 
probably to about eight or nine billion people. Um, but what's funny or interesting is that these eight or nine billion people, right, are all on the planet today. So what would have taken thousands of years to accumulate the eight or nine billion people is now basically alive on the planet today. How do we understand that? Well, what's very possible is that all these people over the thousands of years, each one has come and gone in its own time period. But in the end of time, the Russia wants to bring everybody back at one time to witness the transformation of mankind. So it's, it's like all the Nishamot have been brought back in one generation so they could witness what? They could witness, like I said, the change or the, the transformation of what will be in the end of time. So that itself is a very important indicator <clears throat> that we have so many people living now that would have been the accumulation of all of them in the thousands of years that this world has existed. It's a very interesting concept. Now, one of the problems of that is when everybody's coming back, then there's sort of like a rush job, a rush job where everybody has to <clears throat> go through whatever they need to go through. Those people who have yet tikkun to do have to complete their tikkunim. Those people who have to be punished have to be punished. Those people who have to be rewarded or given a different task, mission, and therefore different circumstances, that has, to, all, that has also to happen at the end of time, especially if everybody's back. So what the Basham did, and now you'll understand something, what the Basham did in order to accomplish that, he, he created a business form that can make a person wealthy overnight or make him poor overnight because there's no time to change people's circumstances economically, which is a great deal of what decides a person's mission. What business form is that? And the answer is the stock market. The stock market is a very interesting form of business. It's not really a business. <clears throat> you know, what's a normal business? Somebody provides either goods or services to other people, and they pay. But in order to become wealthy, it requires a long period of time. You know, you've got to acquire customers. It takes time for people to hear about you, and so on. So if the Bush wants to bring somebody back and try to complete what his situation demands, you know, it, doesn't, it takes too long in the regular give and take economically of the world. So therefore what the Basham did is he put in the mind of a person, I once read that it was a Jew, Jewish person, that had the concept of a stock market. Now what is the concept of a stock market? You don't do any business. What you do is a company has shares, which means you become a partial 
partner in that company. So the shears itself have a value. Sometimes it's attached to the profits, sometimes not, just to the reputation. But the shears itself has a value, and that can go up or down. It has nothing to do with the company in the sense that it's not connected necessarily to the profits of that company, you see, which is what a normal business is, right? The value of a business depends on the profits and the debts. But in the stock market, not necessarily. The profit of a company depends on its share value. What is the value of being a partial partner in that company? And you could sell that. You buy it at a low where the value is low, and then all of a sudden if it goes up, and then you sell that share or that partnership, you can make a lot of money. In fact, the stock market is basically the only way somebody becomes fabulously wealthy overnight. That, that's what the stock market is. Or if you buy a company at a certain value and it takes a nosedive, you can become fabulously poor overnight, you see, because it doesn't depend on the real buying and selling necessarily. It depends on what people perceive the value of being a partial partner. Now, what kind of business is that, really? Like I say, because it's not tied to the actual profit and loss of a company, although it should be. It's really tied, in people's minds, to what is the value of being a partner in this company. Therefore, the stock market is a way that God can reward somebody overnight, or he can make somebody poor and punish him overnight. Isn't that fascinating? That's why there is a stock market. Nothing that man does is by accident. So in many ways, the stock market itself is an indicator that we are in a messianic time to be able to reward or punish people in an incredibly short amount of time. It's a different way of understanding, you know, what, what uh, the, the, the uh, stock market is and how it's tied uh, to, as an indicator to the messianic uh, era. That's what it is. Anyway, so that's a very important concept. Now, we know that Esav had three characteristics. We see that in the Torah. What are the characteristics? First characteristic is what? He was a tremendous Balgaiva, tremendously arrogant person, you know. And uh, uh, we see that because it says Esav, Vayivis Esav as a Bechiro, that when Yaakov's when Esau sold the birthright to Yaakov, it says that Esau despised the birthright. And the birthright is really one's claim, right, to the spirituality of the, fa- of the family. He represented the Ruchnias, the spirituality of the family, you see. So Esau despised the spirituality of the family of Avrom and Yitzchak. Uh, that's tremendous gaiva arrogance. Asa was also a tremendous Russia, obviously, right? 
He was a tremendous uh, evil person. But the evil was a deception. He made himself like a tzaddik. You know, the Chazal tell us that he used to ask his father, do I have to give maizel on salt? He used to do things to try to deceive Yitzchak. Oh, you, you see. Uh, so really, Asa was an imposter. He's a fraud, you see, that concealed his evil. So that's the second. He's a deceiver. He's an imposter. That's the second characteristic of Esav. And the third characteristic of Esav is about Taiva. He was tremendously involved, immersed in pleasure. So that's the third characteristic. Now, if that's the case, that there are three distinct characteristics of Esav, you'll notice that those countries that Esav turned into, in, in other words, Esav became Rome, and Rome became Christianity, right? And Christianity became Western civilization. Therefore, you will find that Western civilization has three different sections. There are three different areas of Western civilization that represent the three different characteristics of Esav. What area represents Esav in his form of Gaiva? <coughs> and the answer to that is Russia under communism, which is atheism, unbelievable arrogance of man, where they think they are gods. So therefore, Russia under communism not necessarily Russia under Christianity, you see, but under communism is the evil of Esau, total evil of Esau. And in many ways that is so bad that God will only allow it to, to exist for approximately seven years. In any case, that's one section of the world that is Esau. A second section is Europe. Europe is also the evil of Esau, but it's not the Gaiva. It's not as bad as Russia, which is openly atheistic. Europe is different. Europe is basically Christian. And as such, it's a fraud. Why? Because Christianity preaches, you know, turn the other cheek, somebody hits you, but they forget to tell you that you turn their cheek, you see, not yours. What does that mean? Because Europe professed to be religious, peace-loving, yet more people have died in the name of Christianity than in all wars combined. Yes, Europe has slaughtered millions and millions of people, especially of Jews. But in general, I mean, just think of the Middle Ages, you know, just think of pogroms, think of expulsions. Inquisitions, you see, Holocaust. Think about how many people died in Europe, all the while professing that they are religious. I mean, the crusade itself is one of the worst times in Europe, where they went, the pretext, of course, was to try to free Jerusalem from the Arabs. Meanwhile, they went through Europe and they butchered everybody. How many Jews died in the crusades? Staggering. What kind of a religion is this? It's a bunch of frauds, imposters. That's the deception of Esau. That is the second characteristic of Esau. 
the charade, the fraudulent aspects of Esau fooling everybody, you see. In any case, that's the second part. The third part, Esau, is the taiva, the uh, pleasure-seeking aspect of Esau. And that, of course, is America. America <clears throat> is a very pleasure-loving uh, country. I mean, think about that, you know. That's what America is concerned with, materialism, pleasure. And that's here for the third part of Esau, you know. And it's interesting that that part of Esau is very characteristic of Esau. In what way? Well, think about it. The commandment or the mitzvah that Esau did in such a great way was keep it of aim, to honor your father and mother. Well, America <clears throat> is one of the few countries in the world that has Mother's Day and Father's Day. You see? And that's exactly what Esau did. In the midst of all that pleasure, you know, there was a tremendous respect for mother and father, you see. Uh, see, therefore, America is that aspect of Esau, three aspects of Esau. <clears throat> Why? Because Western civilization is a self, and therefore it manifests itself in three different ways. Now, there's also a very interesting concept <coughs> which is connected to this. <coughs> it says in the Torah, in the end of Ayishlach, that there are eight kings before there reigned a king in Israel. <coughs> And it says, <coughs> And these are the kings. <coughs> that reigned in the land of Edom. <coughs> Before there reigned a king in Israel, there were eight kings of Esau or Edom. And it reckons eight of them. That's how many there were. And the last one, his name is Hadar Melech. <clears throat> now, this particular section in the Torah is very Kabbalistic. The Zohar says on this that the last king, whose name is Hadar, it's called Hadar Melech, Hadar the king, or King Hadar. The reason why he's called Hadar is because he will reverse, turn around, the evil of the seven, which is interesting. So that indicates... <clears throat> That's the beginning of the indication that Esau will do tshuva. Because the last king, Hadar Melech, right? The Zohar says it's called Hadar. Hadar Mahader means to reverse or to turn around. Because he will turn around the evil of the previous seven kings of Edom. You see. So that's Hadar Melech. And it says that these are the kings of Edom before there reigned a king in Israel. So it compares kings of Edom to a king, singular, of Israel. And what this means is that before the king of Israel, one, who is the Mashiach, by the way, before the Mashiach comes, uh, then Edom, Esau, will reverse through Hadar Melech, which is very interesting. Now, I remember I was thinking about that when it happened in, in 1991, you see. And I was thinking, what's the significance of eight? 
And I realized something very interesting. There were eight, I think they call them secretaries, but there are um, really prime ministers or whatever, you know, the dictators. The first one was Lenin, right? He's the one who conducted the uh, revolution, the communist revolution. So you have Lenin, which is number one. You have Stalin, which is number two. Then a guy was named Malenkov, is number three. Khrushchev is number four, for those who remember him, in the 50s and 60s, whatever, is number four. Uh, then you have, I think, Brezhnev is number five, and Dropov is number six, and Cherninko is number seven. And who is number eight? Uh, the one who turns around the evil of this, these seven, because this is the worst aspect of Asaph. His name is Gorbachev. Isn't that interesting? That Gorbachev is the eighth uh, dictator of communist Russia, which is the most evil part of Russia, that actually turns around communism. And that's exactly what he did. And by the way, just to show you how fascinating the Torah is, the gematria, or the numerical value, of Hadar HaMelech, which is 304, is Gorbachev. That's right. With the, uh, including the number of Oishas, which should be about seven. Uh, so Hadar HaMelech is Gematria Gorbachev. And he was Mahader. He turned the Soviet Union around. So what the Torah is telling us is that before the reign of king in Israel, which is the Mashiach, then communism must die. Now remember, Putin is not interested in restoring communism, which is the real bad part of Asaph. What he wants to restore is the Soviet empire. That's what he dreams, to restore the original Soviet empire. But he's not interested in communism, because he realizes that communism, as an economic policy, is an utter disaster, you see. In fact, one of the interesting historical notes is that the Soviet Union dissolved itself. You remember that? In 1991. When? On the day, on Wednesday, December 25th of 1991. But wait a minute. December 25th is the holiday, right? It's the holiday of Christmas. Yet that is the exact day, and that's the day that they consider the founding of Christianity. And on that day itself, the worst aspect of Esau dissolved legally. I find that to be totally fascinating, you see. So that's the beginning, you see, of that. And also the Gematria of 304, which I mentioned, is also Gematria, Germania, which is Germany. Because if you recall, in 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union fell with the collapse of Berlin, East Berlin, Germany. That's how it started. So that's also the Gematia of Gorbachev, the Gematia of Hader Melech, you see. In any case, so we are now witnessing in history the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, you see, uh, 
Like I said, even today, basically what Putin wants to restore is not communism. You know, it's not as bad as it used to be. He wants to try to restore as a dictatorship. He wants to restore the uh, Soviet Union. In any case, so these are really very important ideas historically of what is to be, you see. In any case, now, <coughs> we know that there's a very important dynamic here. What is the dynamic? That the Sutton exists because he's able to what's called unique, nourish, from the energy of the spheres that the Jews reject. How do they reject? Because the Russian told Odomarishan that your job is to ignore the advice of the primordial snake when he told you to eat from that tree. You must uh, ignore the advice. <clears throat> what happened? But Odom, of course, ate from the tree. Odom and Chava. He and she ate from the tree. So therefore, the Vanshim said to Odom, until now, your mission was to reject the advice of the Sultan, right? However, since you bought into his argument, you gave him credence. You gave him, you believed in his argument, and you ate from the tree, which was against my will. Your job is now not just to ignore his advice. Your job is to destroy him, to kill him, to Sutton, to annihilate him. That's your new job. But the question is how? How can a man destroy a Malach? So what the Bershom did is very interesting. Normally, what a Jew does, in that time it was Adam, when he does a mitzvah, he brings down energy of the spheres that ultimately transforms the physical world into a spiritual world. What happens if he sins? So the energy that he would have brought down by doing the mitzvah, right, is now diverted. It's not that it doesn't come down. It does come down. But it is now diverted to the sultan, you see. So it comes out that there are two beings, entity that are unique from Kedusha, that nourish from the energy of the spheres. One is Odomarishan, and now, of course, that person is the Jew. He nourishes from the, from the energy of the spheres. <coughs> and if he sins, then that energy, holiness, goes to the sudden. So that's a, what's called a transference of Kedusha, right, from the Jew to the sudden. And that's how it works. The problem basically, I mentioned this a long time ago, is that there's only enough energy coming down from one side to exist. So if the Jew does the will of God, then the energy comes to him and he flourishes in all ways. And the sudden begins to die because there's only enough energy for one side to exist or to flourish. comes out, that if the Jew does the will of God, Mitzvah, then he gets the energy and he begins to, uh, you know, become tremendously uh, beneficial to him. He feels energetic, he's healthy, he lives long, and so on. The Sultan, who's now denied that energy, because it's all going to the Jew, begins to get weak. 
And if enough energy is diverted or brought to the Jews and not to the Sultan, because they're not sinning, then he begins to die. He diminishes in stature and in power. And if enough energy is diverted to the Jews, he dies, literally. So that's how the Roshim gave the power to Adam and the Jews to destroy evil. What happens if the Jew sins? Then if he sins, of course, then the energy of the spheres goes to the Sultan. And he begins to flourish. The Jew gets weak, becomes very physical, very superficial, and so on. Becomes sick, and so on. And the Sultan grows tremendously. In fact, the Sultan is the only Malach, angel, that can grow from this transference. He's the only Malach that actually can change in stature because of the energy that he gets from the spheres as a result of the fact that Jews divert this energy to him. In any case, it's combat, because there's only enough energy for one side to flourish, and not both. That's called combat. It's like a seesaw. When one side is up, the other side is down, and when the other side is up, then this side is down. They are never equal. They're always in constant conflict over the energy or the ore of the spheres. That is a very important dynamic in the history of the world, especially the Jews, uh, the Jews themselves. Now, what is critical to know, once you understand this, that the mazal of the Jew depends on the amount of ore of the spheres that they are getting, and the satan his power comes from taking the energy of the spheres. <clears throat> it is critical to know that the whole concept of what the Jew has to do is to rid the evil side of the Satan of his energy, thereby killing the Satan and his whole side of angelic evil. You see, that's what the Jew has to do. They have to rid the side of evil, Sitra Akhra, the side, the other side. They have to rid that being of his energy of the spheres. Restore it to the side of holiness and then bring down the rest of the spheres, right? And change the entire world. That's the purpose of the Jew. So therefore, what we need to understand is when, as we approach the Messianic era, what happens is, is that the Sultan, because of what the Jews do, either they do mitzvahs, or they repent, or they suffer. All of this takes back the energy that the Satan has in his possession as a result of the sins of the Jews. So they have to take it back. It comes out that one of the major concepts is that as we approach the Messianic era, the Satan is bankrupt. Most of the energy that he has now goes back to the side of holiness. So he becomes unbelievably desperate. This is a very important dynamic toward the end of time. When he is bereft of the power of the spheres, because it's all going back to the Jews, 
because the Jews are taking it away from him through either tshuva, because they repent the sin, so the energy of that mitzvah goes to them, or they suffer. And because of their suffering, then the energy of the spheres also goes back to them, away from the satan. Very important idea. And as we get closer to the messianic era, <clears throat> the satan becomes bankrupt. It's all gone. And if that's gone, then he dies. So you can imagine that if this is what's happening today, then he is desperate. In fact, he's in a panic mode. And when the Satan is panicking, you can believe incredible things will happen. Namely, that he will desperately try to hold on. By the way, that's one of the reasons why the heir of Rav, who are the Jews that try to destroy Torah, uh, they become powerful at that point in time. Like you find the sin of the golden calf. All of a sudden, the heir of Rav, those people want to, in many ways, destroy Judaism. They become powerful. Why? <clears throat> because since the Kiddusha, the holiness, is in the side of the Jewish people, not in his side, then he needs to go to the Jews to try to convince them to sin. Because they've got the power back. And that's why <clears throat> the Erev Rav, who are the agents of the Satan, his soldiers, that's why they become powerful and he argues for that in his Kitrugim, in his prosecutions, you see. Because all the Kiddusha, basically, is back in the hands of the Jewish people, not by the Satan. Now, what does the Satan do when he has the energy? He distributes it. He doles it out to the nations of the world. <clears throat> because that's how they survive. They survive by the energy of the Sfirot that is in the, that is in the hands of the Satan. He distributes it, and he has his favorites. He has his people of the Goyim, the nations of the world, that are his major soldiers. For instance, in the time of the Jews in Egypt, Egypt is called the firstborn of the Satan, because Egypt was the major nation that the Satan used to do his will, which is to make sure people sin. I see. And during history, different nations become the Bechor, the firstborn of the Satan, which means they become sort of like the generals in the army of the Satan. So besides Egypt, you had Babylon, you had uh, Persia, you had Greece, and then, of course, you have Rome, which is Christianity, which is, of course, Western civilization. <clears throat> they have become the Bechor, of the Satan. And that's what he does. He distributes the energy to these people. And his, his strategy is to get, try to get Jews to sin, to promote the enormous amount of evil in the world, which he hopes will influence the Jews. In any case, we now understand something very important. We understand the mechanics of how the Satan survives with the energy of the Sfirot because of the Jews giving it to him because of the sin. We understand that the job of the Jew is to take back all that energy from the Satan. Right? Because we have to take it back to ourselves and then bring down, bring down the rest 
in order to what's called mezakech, to purify the world. <coughs> so the one who basically brings it back from the Satan to the Jewish people is Mashiach ben Yosef. Because his major job is to fight the Satan, to take it back. And the one who brings down the rest is Mashiach ben David. And he changes the world. And that's the whole concept of Tchiat Mesim, where people get up from the dead. Because basically the Satan dies in his time, you see. Because all the Emiko, all the nourishment of the energy of the Sfirot is now back in the hands of the Jewish people. So this then is the logic of what goes on in the end. Now here's the interesting thing, how it plays out in our time. <clears throat> I mentioned that the Satan is dying, right? The Satan is actually dying. So therefore, he must engage in some type of strategy or he dies. What strategy? Imagine there's a general who's fighting a war with another nation. And all of a sudden he realizes that he only has one week's worth of firepower left. And then if he runs out of that, he's finished. So he really only has three strategies. One is called bluff. What he's going to do is use firepower, one week's firepower left, and try to, you know... um, use all of it up in one week to bluff the enemy, right, that he has so much power left, they're going to resign themselves to their fate because they'll figure they'll never win. So he does that. But what happens if all of a sudden he, you know, gives out all his armaments in a week and the enemy is not dismayed? Now what does he do? You know, he hardly has anything left. So what he then does is a second strategy. He's trying to convince the enemy nation that he's fighting to stop the war. You know, we don't want war anymore. He tries to go into the nation that he's fighting and try to convince the people, they're called dissidents, that argue in favor of stopping the war because he's hoping that they will therefore stop and he will therefore continue to survive. So he tries that. What happens if that doesn't work? So he's finished. Because he has no armaments left. The other nation continues to fight. So he has only one more strategy left. And that is he needs new armaments, firepower, from another country, an ally. <clears throat> you see. And if that doesn't work, he's finished. The Satan employs the exact same thing. The first thing, the bluff, since he's running out of Kedusha, he's dying. So he's going to try to bluff. What is that? He's going to try to get the, all the nations of the world to destroy the Jews. That was the Holocaust. Where all the nations of the world, in some manner, was guilty in some way. Either they were killing Jews, right? Or they were, uh, you know, part of the plot, all right, uh, in terms of doing, uh, killing Jews and so on, or they refused them entry. They hold an incredible part in the destruction, the Holocaust of the Jewish people. Why? Is because he wanted to kill Jews? Not really. He was hoping 
that the the uh, this the measures to kill the Jews from the the whole world almost would be so extreme that the Jews would say, "Look, obviously God has abandoned us, so let's forget the mitzvahs." And if they have no mitzvahs, so then what will happen is they will stop being religious. If they would stop being religious, then all the kedusha that they would have gotten from doing the mitzvah now goes to the satan, resupplying his energy, you see? So that's what he was hoping, to change the belief system of Klai Israel to become apikosim, minim. Did he succeed? No. There were many people, unfortunately, that gave up their Judaism. But take a look at what's happening. There's a tremendous renewal and resurgence of religion, whether it be in America or Israel, or Europe, and so on. So he clearly failed that the great bluff. So now what he does is he turns to his major soldiers. Who are they? I mentioned. They are the heir of Rav, right? They are the Jews that wish to remove the Torah as a supreme document, right? Belief system. So he sends the heir of Rav out. And that is why the ones who took over the land of Israel are the heir of Rav, right? Labor, all those guys that took people who came from the Middle East, Europe, and tried to turn them into Apikosim. We all know the problem with the Yemenites and what happened with the uh, Asians and, and Ethiopians and so on, what they did to these people. So therefore, that's the second is by putting in people of your uh, kind, the Satan, and getting them to invade, so to speak, or pervade <clears throat> the Jewish people to try to create a Bikosim. So you're looking at the reformed, the conservative, reconstructionist. All of these people are trying to change the Jewish people into a Bikosim. Those are, that's strategy number two. And that's why the state of Israel was founded by people who are utterly non-religious and talk about reformed and conservative in the United States and so on. Did it, did it uh, succeed? It failed. And now the problem is, what does the Satan do? So the Satan now ha has to go to a new place of unique of nourishment of the spheres to a new army, you see, uh, uh, allies. But wait a minute. <clears throat> There's only two people that have the unique of the spheres, either the Jews, because they take it down from the mitzvahs, or <clears throat> the second one, right, is there a second one? And there's Satan. He gets the unique, the nourishment that's diverted to him. There's nobody else that has any of this. So who can Satan turn to? And the answer is, there is a third nation. The only nation other than the <clears throat> Satan that can take Yenika is Ishmael. Yes, the Arabs. Why? Because Avram Avinu said, Lu Yishmuel When the Barashim said that you will have a son Yitzchak, so uh, Avram Avinu said, Alavai Yishmuel should live before you. What that means is that he should live before you, he should derive his ability to exist, not from the satans, 
uh, you know, uh, energy of the spheres. <clears throat> he should be able to exist based on his own uh, doing good. You know, whatever they do, and so on. So Yishmuel can draw down Kedusha from the spheres, or Kedusha, based on his own history, not based on the Satan. So here's what happens, right? So the Satan goes over to the angel of Yishmuel and says, <clears throat> Listen, I need your energy, because you have it independent of me. So the angel says, the Malach says, Okay, what are you willing to offer for that? So the Satan says, <clears throat> what would you like? So the Malach says the following, Who is your firstborn? Who is the one that represents you and does so much evil? And the answer to that, of course, is Edom, Esav, right? Who does so much, in many ways, evil? Esav. So, I want you to make, this is what the Malach of Yishmo says, I want you to make my people, means my uh, representations, Yishmael, the Arabs, I want the Muslims, I want you to make them your Bukhar. You see, that is the request of the angel of Yishmael. It's amazing. So that since the Sultan needs the energy of the spheres that Yishmael has, independent of his own, so therefore he agrees. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a basically a Muslim becomes the President of the United States, Obama. Obama represents Yishmael. That's who, because that's really what he is. He is a Muslim, really. He was born, he grew up as a Muslim. And deep down, that's what he is. Even though he also practices Christianity, so how in the world, which is the question, can somebody who is basically a beginner in politics, because that's what he was, not only that, he was friends with a preacher that was terrible, even anti-American. And not only that, but the guy's a Muslim. How in the world did he become president? And the answer is because that's the deal that the Sultan was dying made with the angel of Yishmael. That's what he did, you see. And therefore, lo and behold, he becomes the president of the United States. A Muslim uh, becomes the president of Edom, you see, Esav, <clears throat> which is astounding. Now, what the Bershom wanted, he allowed this to go through. Why? Because in the end of time, not only does Esav have to come back and do tshuva, but so does Yishmael. He also has to do tshuva, you see. And because Yishmael, the son of Avram, he did tshuva because he allowed Yitzchak to go first when Avram Avinu died, you see. So from here Chazal learned <clears throat> that Yishmael did tshuva. In any case, so what it seems is that the Russian wanted to give Obama a tremendous merit. And that was the Cheshbon, the reckoning of God, and that Obama would restore the peace between the Arabs and the Israelis. But what happened? Because Obama is a megalomaniac, because he's an unbelievable, narcissistic, and selfish person, 
and I might add, tremendous gaifa, which is really megalomania. <clears throat> Instead, he kowtowed to the Arabs, and on the contrary, he made it incredibly difficult for the Jews and the Arabs again to be together. So what he did is he destroyed the opportunity. And not only that, you see, he had an incredible opportunity, because not only was he president, but the House and the Senate were both all democratic. He had enormous power, and not only that, everybody was hypnotized by him. If you remember, people—it's like a trance. Uh, you know, his inauguration and so on. What he did is he had an inauguration. It wasn't an inauguration; it was a coronation. If you recall, in 2008, his coronation. It's like everybody was incredibly enamored of Obama. And therefore, God gave him unbelievable power to make peace between the Arabs and the Jews. Of course, he failed to do that because he's too busy thinking about himself and his arrogance. And that's also because he's a very evil person. In any case, he's a fool because he could have done what it took Trump to do. And that is to bring the Jews and the Arabs, Yishmael, together. And that would have meant that Yishmael would have done tshuva with the Jewish people. But he's a fool. In any case, this is what <clears throat> Obama did. So he failed to do what he actually could have done because he had so much unbelievable power. So this, this is what we see so far. Therefore, what we now realize that we, and I mentioned this in previous show, we are now toward the end of time and there's a tremendous war because remember, the Satan is dying because Yishmael himself is dying. You see that? <clears throat> Why? What does that mean? Because they themselves are running out of their own energy of the spheres. I mean, they have a certain amount based on their behavior, right? But that's also ending. So the Satan doesn't even have the energy of Yishmael, you see. And therefore, Obama is no longer president. <clears throat> but the evil of Esav and the evil of Yishmael, they are now combined, you see, combined powers to do the evil that they're doing. And that is why you have Obama still. He's the president behind the scenes. And by Biden. Biden is being led by Obama, you see. Uh, so Biden who represents Esav or Edom, right? And Obama, who represents Yishmael. They are the evil of Yishmael and the evil of Edom, together with the progressives, which is the Democratic Party, the liberals, and so on. They are the toiv, they are the Ra, the evil, of Esav and Yishmael. And that's really what the battle is in America. The Bronshom then brings in Trump, which I spoke about extensively. And he is a Tov of, And he actually does what Obama should have done. And that is bring Yishmuel and the Jews together as part of the tshuva of Yishmuel. You see, these are very important ideas. Because this is actually what's happening now. So we are witnessing the sudden dying and the Satan, therefore, conducting an incredible war between the evil of Yishmael, which is Obama, 
the evil of Edom, which is Biden, and the Democratic Party, to destroy the good part of Esav, you see, and the good part of Yishmael. You are, what? you are witnessing that in America. I mean, take a look. Here's a guy like Biden. Uh, he knows what Iran, who is Yishmael, wants to do to Israel. Yet he is so desperate for some type of a victory, you know, some type of a public relations stunt, which he tried to do in Afghanistan, that he doesn't care, really, if Iran gets nuclear weapons. It's obvious, which is an incredible existential threat to Israel. And together with Biden is Obama, because he's the one leading Biden. Because Biden, we know, is completely incapacitated. The man has no concept or who he is, or what he is, or where he is. He's barely awake, you see. What does he have on his schedule? One item a day? And the one behind him, everybody knows he's being led, and he's being led by Obama, maybe Susan Rice, and some of these people. <clears throat> so we are witnessing a major battle, all being instigated by the Sultan in order to survive. Yishmoel, the bad part of Yishmoel, the bad part of Edom, at war with a good part of Esau, Edom, and a good part of Yishmael, you see. And we are witnessing that because we are basically at the end of time. Look, things are going very fast. It's astounding how quick things are going in the last year. And of course, <clears throat> I had mentioned why everything stopped, because justice has to be satisfied before the messianic process, which I mentioned was the restart button, has to continue. <clears throat> and this is really what is happening, you see. And uh, Zoya, we really only have eight years to go. Because Zoya says that the Mesim, the resurrection of the dead, is going to take 210 years. But in order for that to happen, Sheikh Ben David has to come first. 210 years before the end, before the year 6000, right? Uh, the English year of the end is 2240. If you subtract 220, uh, uh, subtract from the year of 2240, it comes out to 2030. But we are now in 2022. That means in eight years, basically, Mashiach Ben Dovid will arrive. When he arrives, there will be Tchir resurrection of the dead. But that means Mashiach ben Yosef and everything that he performs, executes, has to happen in eight years. And that's why you are seeing so many rapid things taking place. So obviously there's not much time. Like I said, all of this is being whipped up by the Sultan. Because when you look at what's happening... Who would ever believe that America has turned to a country of unbelievable degradation, immorality, depravity that America has become? It has become a country of incredible hashkosa, evil, which really means all they're interested in is in materialism, tremendous sexual perversions, LGBTQ, and so on. And it is now not just accepted, is preferred. There's a whole war on gender, vocabulary. It's just incredible to watch what America has turned into. 
I'm not even going into the insanity of economics. But the good sign is the fact that Biden and company is failing, you see. And hopefully what that means is that their tekufa, where God has allowed the evil of Yishmael and the evil of Esav, he has allowed them to uh, proliferate, that he is now ending that because it's no longer necessary. So we have to hope that's really what's happening. Is their time is coming to an end where God will resume the messianic era and bring back sanity into America, you see. But in any case, <clears throat> this is what's happening now. <clears throat> and uh, uh, what we see really is the, di- the dynamics of all of this, the logic of all of this, within the context of the whole concept of Hashkofa, the Sutton Zinika, and how the, uh, all of this is orchestrated in heaven based on the messianic requirements. Any questions? You know, Rabbi, this week was a very big Kiddush Hashem. In yeah. uh, Saudi Arabia, they played the Hatikva. So isn't that like... No, I think that was the UAE. I think that was the UAE. Yeah, United that, Arab Emirates. That was in Abu Dhabi. Yes, not in Isn't Saudi Arabia. Isn't that like a Kiddush Hashem? It's unheard of. Could you imagine a nation that I, I, used to be the enemy is now playing the national anthem of a country that used to be their enemy? This is what so I mean that, that Yishmael the does Juva. No what was that? So Yishmael's uh, bad angel is dying? Well, he's... Yeah, well, I don't know if I would call it dying, but he's failing... He's not making it because he himself has very little to offer the Satan. This is what's happening. Look, the Arabs used to be a world power in and of themselves with oil, but they have in many ways been relegated to the side because the United States is really oil independent and they're coming out with all kinds of different energy sources and so on, you know, electric and so on, which will minimize the amount of necessity of, of oil. So the, their ability to be successful and powerful because of oil is severely diminished. Why? Because they are diminished. Their access to the spheres is severely diminished. It's over with. So as a result of that, the Yishmael, the good part of Yishmael, <clears throat> now achieves ascendancy over the bad part, you see. So the Sultan is not finding any Nechama, any consolation with the Malach of Yishmael, you see. So this is how, when you think about it, these ideas explain what is happening today. You see, the dynamics of political movements based on the messianic necessities. <clears throat> you see. So, Rabbi. By the way, uh, Rabbi, today, today yes. is the yard site of Moshe Rabbeinu right now. Yes, we talked about that. Correct. So it's a very big thing too. Yes. Maybe you could pray for us. Well, I want to talk about something which is highly unusual. Highly unusual. Most people never heard of. You know, I mean, what are we? How much time do I have, really? <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't worry, we have time. We have to go. You keep going. Yes, hello. It's interesting when you think about it. Who is Aaron Akoyan? We know that Moshe Abayin is Mashiach Ben Yosef, right? But when you look at the Chumash, you find that Aaron Akoyan was an equal to Moshe Abayinu. In fact, Rashi says that a couple of times in the Torah, the Torah puts Aaron before Moshe. So Rashi says to teach you, they were equal. Uh, so the question then is, who is this person? If Moshe Rabbein is Mashiach ben Yosef, then who's Aaron HaKoyen? Mashiach ben David. No. Mashiach ben David. No, not at all. Mashiach ben David doesn't come until later. Uh, so what you begin to realize is a very remarkable idea. And I'll just throw it out. Okay. Uh, is that really Mashiach ben Yosef are really two people. They're two people. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means the function of a messianic process based on Mashiach ben Yosef has to have two people. And what is that? One is the source of Chochmah, which is called the Orishim. There is an individual that's the source, and that was Moshe Abeno. Take a look. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was the source of the Torah. He's the one who received the Torah from the Rabbani Shalom. And there are certain times that Aaron received it uh, as a reward, but basically Moshe Rabbeinu was the fountain of Torah of the Torah itself, everything, you see. So that requires the energies of one person. But then there's somebody who has to be a bridge, you see. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't be the bridge because he had a speech defect. In fact, the Rabbani Shem says in the beginning of Shmois, he says to Aaron Akoyan, excuse me, to Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, and when Moshe Rabbeinu says, I can hardly speak, so the Rabbani Shem says, don't worry, I will send Aaron Akoyan with you. He but wait a minute, then who's Aaron Akoyan? And the answer is, he is a necessary assistant or I would even say equal to Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Torah says that. <clears throat> but Arna Cohen wasn't the source. The source of the all recent, the messianic light, the Omishiach, is Moshe Rabbeinu, basically. Arna Cohen's job was to take this divine information, right, the Holy Torah itself, and bridge it, connect it to the Jewish people. Because Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the, the Gemara goes into how was it taught? So it said that Moshe taught it to Aaron, then Aaron taught it to his two children, Elozan and Asama, and then they taught it to the 70 elders, and then the 70 elders taught it to the whole Jewish people. Obviously they had an incredible breakdown in the teaching system. But Aaron Akoyan was the first one to receive the oral law, or the written law, and so on, you see. What that means is that Aaron right, is the bridge or the conduit to the Jewish people to receive the Torah. But that's the job of the Mashiach ben Yosef. But it was divided into two. One is the source, and the other is the continuity or the bridge. Then from that, it could now spread 
to the rest of the Jewish people. You see, uh, that's what we see. So we begin to realize something very interesting, that the function of Mashiach ben Yosef is really two people, not one. If that's the case, we now understand why there are two others. Now, there are two others, right? Because there are 13 tribes. Yosef is divided into what? Menashe and Ephraim, right? That's 13 tribes. Because Yosef is now divided into two, Menashe and Ephraim. But that only happens Mm. sometimes, you see. So one of the reasons why is there's two others, because when there's two others, then obviously there's 13 months. Each month represents one tribe. Now, if you count Menashe and Ephraim as two separate tribes of Yosef, there you are. 13 months, 13 tribes. But there's another concept which I'm introducing, and that is that the first Ador is one Mashiach. The second Ador is his partner, if you want to use that expression, is the second Mashiach ben Yosef, because they really have distinct roles, you see. And not only that, it's not that Moshe Rabbeinu could do the job of Aaron. He couldn't. That's why he says to Moshe, right, don't worry, I'm going to let Aaron Akoyim be your spokesman. But why would that be? Because the problem is that it's very difficult for one person to do both jobs. It takes everything you have to be the source of divine revelation. It takes everything you have, you see. Then, the second job, it takes everything you have to communicate that, to teach it to the Jewish people. That's a major job, you see. The same concept of Yaakov and Esau, you see. Well, you also have two people doing the concept of Tferis, because you have to have different characteristics, and so on. But in any case, this is what we see. Now, what is interesting about that, so Ado, one Ado, you know, besides being 13 tribes, Manash and Ephraim, whatever, so it could be that one Ado is Mashiach ben Yosef, right, who is one person, and the second Ado is Mashiach ben Yosef, who is the other person. Now, wouldn't be that fascinating. Now, since it says, he may go out there, is gracious, behold, it says in Kedusha, by Musaf, behold, I will redeem you, the second, right, just like the first. In other words, the second Gula, which is now, will be exactly like the first, because that's exactly what the Tikkun process is. It's a replication of the Tikkun process, which is a redemption itself. And therefore, it has to be the same thing as what happened in Egypt, which is I spoke about, and so on. If that's the case, so is it possible that the union of Mashiach ben Yosef will involve two people? One being the source, because the Mashiach ben Yosef is Chochom. See, he is, he is the receiver of the Orishan. And the Mashiach ben David, right, he's the one who executes, he's the king. You see, he's the one that is the executive in Klai Yisrael, who actually, you know, administrates Klai Yisrael. But the Chochmah itself of the Orishan apparently comes from Sheikh ben Yosef. You see, in fact, the Beis Hamikdash Ashlishi will be built by the Mashiach ben Yosef. Because Gemara, my Sashani Yushalmi, actually says 
that the Beis Hamikdash will be built before Mashiach ben David. Now, who's that? That's Mashiach ben Yosef. And I suspect very strongly that what's going to bring all the Jews together, I quote this Pesach many times, right? Behold, even if you're outcasts, be at the ends of heaven and it's of them, right? From there, in that country itself, I will gather you, which means I will separate you from the Goyim, and I will take you, which means I will give you the Torah, and then I will bring you to Eretz Israel. It's an open Pesach. You see, how? It's a great mystery. But I suspect how, because the Bonisham is going to lower, like I once said, the Beis Hamikdash in heaven. That's going to become the Baishlishi. And just like in the Shekhinah, the level of Shekhinah in heaven is going to become the level of Shekhinah on earth. That's an actual descent. In any case, but, so therefore, the messianic figure called Yosef, not only does he exist, but he exists as two people, which is interesting. And if it's true that Egypt will mirror the goal of the redemption of the Egypt, or of the, the, the latter-day gula, uh, will mirror the gula of Egypt, then the gula of now, also it would make sense that there would be two people. One who is the source of the Chochmah, of the messianic light, and the second is the bridge to bring it to everybody else, because it requires tremendous energies and uh, you know tasks to do that. <clears throat> and therefore, there are two others. What I'm telling you is a completely different understanding of Moshe Viaran, you know, which is totally different to what most people f- suspect. But nobody can deny that Aaron was the equal of Moshe, not in prophecy, because the Moshe Rabbeinu had to have that, because he was the source of the, of the Torah itself. You have to have the highest level of Nevoah, prophecy, to be able to receive that, you see. But in terms of Tzitkos, in terms of righteousness, they were equal. I mean, Rashi says that. Shkulimheim. In fact, Rashi says that's why, in certain places, Aaron is mentioned before Moshe. So the Torah itself testifies to their equality. You see, it's a very important concept. But wait a minute. If they are equal, not in prophecy, but equal in the stature of their Kedusha, they have to be equal in their function, which is the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef. They just have two different areas of that, you see. That's why we have two others, you see. Okay, I thought that would be of interest to everybody. It is interesting. Isn't it? So I have a question. Any questions? Yes. So would there be two separate picky dies for each of the persons? No, no. Because it's still one Indian. It's one subject matter. So they get it at the same time? Yes. Yes, it will be at the same time. <clears throat> and by the way, if that's the case, one more idea, that we know Mashiach ben Yosef suffers. I went into a whole sheer on that. The suffering of the Messiah, right, in order for them to survive. I mentioned the Medrash, Yalkut, and so on. 
that would also mean that the suffering of the Messiah, of Mashiach ben Yosef, is true of the second person also. He would share the burden of Yisurin. Just to let you know. So now that we have two Adars this year, is yes. it uh, more likely for the Pekidah to happen because it represents both parts of uh, Mashiach ben Yosef? Yes. And not only that, remember this year Shemitah. Right. Right. And the Gemara says that the Mashiach comes at the end of Shemitah. So that really makes it a candidate, doesn't it? Wow. So, so I once read, Rabbi, that um, Aharon and Moshe begin with an Aleph and a Mem. And then um, Hashem used those two letters also with Purim, with um, Mordechai and Esther. And, and Esther. he said that when the Mashiach comes, they're also going to be an Aleph and a Mem. So those Aleph and Mem is not necessarily for Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. It's speaking about Mashiach ben Yosef exclusively. Um, Have you ever heard of that? No, I never. It's an interesting oh. concept, but I've never heard that. No, Rabbi Mansell gave a whole class about a lot of Aleph and Mems to gather okay. pa- uh, people together. Okay, that's fine. Uh, by the way, Rabbi, your letter is a Mem. I know. Your name. <laughs> we need to pair you up with an Aleph. Yeah. We need to find the Aleph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you know. Okay, so I, we've heard a lot of ideas about history, about current events, uh, about who, who all these people are. The key, look, one of the keys of truth, by the way, is what's called internal consistency. Because if something is true, it has to be consistent internally, which means it has to connect the dots internally. That's one of the hallmarks of truth. So what I've tried to demonstrate is all of this stuff has incredible internal consistency, where it's all internally together. You know, it's where everything seems to match the principles. In other words, the history matches the theory, you see. And that's a very important indicator of truth. It's not proof of truth. But it is expected that if something is true, it has to have the quality of internal consistency. And that's why we notice that all these things that I talk about, you know, the hashkafa, the principles, the current events, and so on, it's amazing that all of it adds up to the same thing. It's all internally consistent. No matter where you look, it all has a, a tremendous explanation that makes sense you see and that's a very important idea so I'm showing you the whole concept of Obama and Biden and what's going on with the Satan that he's dying all of that is consistent with what has to be at the end of time you see it's a lot of ideas it would be nice to have a chart where you have every idea and how they're all connected, you know, one of these kind of charts, which is interesting. And then you see the beauty, you know, it's called the beauty 
However, everything is connected by looking at this chart. It would be the current events chart. You know? So the next step after Ishmael and Esav's powers starts to diminish, the next step is walks in Mashiach and Yosef? Yes. So we're on, that that path. we're on that really path. We're on that path. Yeah. And according to the Zohar, we only have eight years. All of this Mashiach mm. and uh, Yosef has to take place in eight years. And look at look at how it works. Look look what's been happening in the last, you know, five, ten years. It's unbelievable. And you understand the purpose of each thing basically. You know, what the purpose of Obama is and and Biden, the Democratic Party, <coughs> the concept of evil, the termination of Trump. Who is Trump? It all fits like a hand in a glove. You see? So if the process is, if we only have eight years, and the process has been very slow, and we have a lot to happen within the next eight years, it has to start already. Yes, it is. It is starting. You know, so it starting is. starting where we actually, like, see it, where people are, like... Well, nobody's going to see it. Well, the real seeing. But it's already obvious to people who know Hashkafa. should be obvious right. anyway. Right. It's those people who don't see... Who everything they look at is superficial. They don't see anything. Unless it's in front of their nose. But that's going to be much later. Where it becomes so obvious that even they will say, Hey, Mashiach is here. I, but I think everybody feels in their bones that there's something going on that's never happened before. America has never deteriorated so rapidly. Never happened before. Nobody would believe this, that people in America want to become communists, socialists, progressives, that there could be a democratic party that's so illogical that they should want to impeach a president Twice? For what? Everybody knows the whole thing is a sham. You know? It's just beyond belief. It is so obvious to most people, but they don't know how to interpret it. So they walk around in a daze. But everybody knows that it's a crazy time. That's the most that most people will give it. It is a crazy time. But they cannot explain... The craziness. You see what I'm saying? Right. They don't have the they don't have the information or the knowledge. Very few people have that. You see. Hello. Uh, my my yeah. question is is that after like okay obviously the people who know Hashkafa they see it already starting, but how yeah. how soon will it be that like things start actually changing in our own personal lives because the Mashiach is here. Well, that will, that will come with the, when there's a definitive moment. Because right now everyone's lives are still continuing as is. I mean, yes. besides the fact that we're getting closer to Hashem and we're, yes. doing, we're trying to do more mitzvot and all that, but, uh, but otherwise, uh, you know, your regular physical life, it's still the same. Yes especially now when we are in a downturn. Right, so but when there has does to be a change? time when it turns up, 
when it begins to reverse. There has to be a time when that starts. Remember, what's about to happen is supernatural. It will be extraordinary. Because we're talking about the Gula. We are talking about the redemption of the universe. We're not talking here about the progress of a country. <clears throat> we are talking about a revelation of a completely different reality. The reality of God. That is something which is beyond belief. The only time that has ever occurred, right, is by Odomaritian, when the revelation of reality of God was obvious, even to him. And then it occurred by Martin Terra. That was the second time, you know, by, um, by Egypt and so on. And the third time is going to be the redemption. But it's going to be so powerful that people are just going to stare in disbelief of what is happening. That's how powerful it's going to be.